But today we're going to look at uh, Judaism and focus on modern Judaism. And uh, let me read a passage uh, that you've turned to, Romans 9.30, and we'll read through chapter 10, verse 4. And ironically, Paul says, what shall we say then that Gentiles, non-Jews, not physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Gentiles who worship the gods of Mount Olympus in his culture, all these crazy, uh, flawed kind of superhero people, uh, that Gentiles, Roman Greek Gentiles who did not pursue the righteousness of God and could care less about it, attained righteousness, I mean a perfect righteous standing before God, even the righteousness which is by faith. It's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't unearn it. You can't undeserve it. But Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by and large, there were exceptions, the apostles and many others, but it's a small percentage. But Israel, by and large, pursuing a law of righteousness, they squeezed the grace out of the whole thing. Uh, isn't it nice to get a brand new uh, tube of toothpaste, you know, but you got to squeeze it at the end, right? Uh, that, was, that was a big argument Debbie and I had. It's probably the biggest argument we've had. You know, she was a dental hygienist. I was a biology major going to dental school. And I didn't know you weren't supposed to squeeze it in the middle of the tube, you know? And and she's very meticulous about things like that. You know, she takes uh, toothpaste very seriously. Well, you know, you look at Old Testament Judaism and modern Judaism, and although they're exceptions, they basically squeezed the grace out of the system. It became a focus on the law, focus on being good enough, focus on climbing a ladder of goodness, trying to impress God. That wasn't the system. Uh, so verse 31 again, Israel, by and large, the vast majority, squeezing the grace out of the tube and pursuing a law, the Mosaic law, which was given by God, but they thought if they obeyed that well enough, God would have to let them into heaven did not arrive at the point of that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it, salvation, a right standing with God by faith in Christ alone, but as though it were by works, by being better than most of the other people while you tried to obey the law. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then we have an Old Testament citation from Isaiah, just as it is written in Isaiah, Behold, I lay in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Jesus, who's the foundation of our salvation, when we believe in him, also is a stumbling stone for people who are thinking that they can earn salvation by being a good enough person, that God grades on a curve. Chapter 10, verse 1, right in the middle of this uh, flow of thought. Brethren in Rome, he's writing to Christians in Rome, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for their salvation. I'm praying they'll see the light. But I testify about them. That though they have a zeal for God, he's thinking about Old Testament Jews, the Pharisees especially, but not in accordance with truth or knowledge, for not knowing in the sense that they've embraced it about God's righteousness through faith because Christ dies to pay for our sins in our place, and seeking to establish their own by being good enough, by being better than Gentiles and most other Jews, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, but Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We're going to look at Judaism, and we're going to... This is the big thing I want you to really take home, Clay. Okay, Modern Judaism is not your Bible's Judaism. Okay, Haley? Modern Judaism is not what you're going to read about in the Old Testament. It's not what you're going to read about in the New Testament, because they're dealing with the first of two historical phases. Modern Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, isn't your Bible's Judaism, and if the original form tended to squeeze the grace out of the tube, the modern form has definitely squeezed it out of the tube. That's the problem. They got scripture, 
but they don't submit to the righteousness of God through Christ. They don't trust in Christ. Okay, Clay, we're going to warm up your capacity for abstract thought a little faster than usual today before we pray for teachability in our troops. Five good things not to say if you ever, and Clay may do this, I'm hoping he will, run for president. Number five, on my first day in office, I will sign an executive order, not about the wall, but reinstating Pluto as a full-fledged planet. In 2018, I donated 10% of my income to charity because I think it's critical for all Americans to support the important work of the Lady Gaga fan club. Don't say that if you're running for president, Hal. It's not going to work. Number three, to help the oil business. Dale, if prices fall below $50 a barrel, I'll double the price of barrels. Let's do that again. Uh, we're not talking about the oil. We're talking about the barrels. If... Uh, Prices fall below, it's not going to help, is it? Okay, let's go to the next one. If I'm elected president, I will not live in the White House. I will continue to live in a halfway house. And finally, I will dedicate my presidency to my dear friend and personal mentors, Mr. Pee Wee Herman and Mr. Ron Miller. Don't say that if you're running for president. It's not going to work for you. Okay, let's get serious again. Uh, Hal, uh, pray for us, okay? Pray that we'll be teachable to God's word today. And we always pray for Hal's a, a proud Army veteran. So let's uh, remember our troops, peace officers, and firefighters, okay? You pray for us. Amen. Thank you. Yeah, let's think about Judaism, and let's just look at some statistics. There are like 7.5 billion, with a B, people on planet Earth right now. And the way that religious study scholars count the noses, there's 2.3 billion who embrace Christianity at some level. About 1.8 who embrace Islam, 1.12 billion who associate with Hinduism, a little over half a billion, 517 million who embrace Buddhism, Judaism, 15 million. Now, it's 15 million with no context, a big number. Would you like to have 15 million dollar bills? I would, for sure. Is that a big percentage of the whole? 15 million compared to 7.5 billion is not very much. That number should jump out at you. Uh, Jewish people have won one-fourth of all the Nobel Prizes, uh, according to time, like 14 of the most 100, most 100 most important people in the 20th century were Jewish people. And Judaism is the glide path to Christianity. I mean, God has used Judaism, biblical Judaism, in big ways. But when you look at the percentage, you know, Christians are about a third of the world population, Muslims about a fourth. Jews are 0.2%. It's teeny-weeny, and yet uh, they've had a huge impact uh, and a special place in God's program. Uh, that's world statistics. These, this is uh, statistics in the United States, and we've seen this chart lately. We're evangelical Protestants. Evangelical is the word for gospel in the original language, and the gospel is the truth that Christ died for our sins, and he paid for our sin debt, uh, how many of uh, Katie doesn't sin very much anymore? How many of how many of Lloyd Davis's sins were future on a timeline when Jesus Christ died for Lloyd's sins? How many of them? All of them. How many are forgiven as far as your standing the day you trust Christ as Savior? God regenerates you. All the ones Christ died for. So that's evangelical Protestants. Doesn't matter what color, country, culture, generation, denomination. If that's at the core of your faith. It's not just rituals and taking communion and being baptized. It's trusting in Christ alone for salvation. According to Pew, 
Institute, about 25% of Americans are evangelical Protestants. I think that kind of overstates it based on my theology, but that's their number. But how about Jewish folks? Well, of the major world religions that we just looked at, you know, five of them, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Judaism, Lori, well, look at this. The Jewish faith is the second largest major religion represented in the U.S. population, but it's a small percentage. Let's just go from 1.9. Let's round it up. Let's make it 2%. So that's about 6.5 million people out of 327 million. It's a small percentage, but it's a larger percentage than any of the other major world religions, like double how many Muslims there are in the United States. Now, that's the world of the United States. Let's go to Oklahoma. Uh, we have got, according to religious studies scholars, almost 50% of Oklahomans claim to be evangelical Protestants, but the Jewish folks in Oklahoma, God bless them, are less than 1%, less than 40,000 people in uh, the state of Oklahoma. So that's just some basic statistics. But here's uh, the big idea today. Modern Judaism... And uh, the textbook I'm teaching this semester calls it rabbinic Judaism. Is not your Bible's Judaism. It's not Old Testament Judaism. It's not the Judaism you read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and that the apostles are relating to. Uh, there are two historical phases, and I think this is really important if you want to understand the status quo, which is a Latin expression that means the mess we's in. Uh, biblical Judaism is the first historical phase. It uh, stressed obeying the Torah, the books of Moses, based on what the other books of the Old Testament taught. Uh, they stressed that, sought God through the Torah. They had one central sanctuary. Sometimes it was called, it's called the, temp, uh, the tabernacle in your Old Testament. Sometimes it's called the temple. What's the difference? Tabernacle is a tent. It's portable. You don't get a, a fixed standing brick and mortar building until the first temple and we'll go to the Temple Mount in a few months um, in, in person. Hopefully, if the Mufti lets us on the Temple Mount. Some years he does, some years he doesn't. But we'll get very, very close either way. But the Temple is a physical building that Solomon directed the building of the first one. That was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then the second temple, the one that the Lord Jesus would have been in and around, uh, was rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity. But it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 CE. So watch this. The original form of Judaism was based on rituals and sacrifices that took place in one central sanctuary for all of Judaism at a temple or a tabernacle. But there has not been a Jewish temple since when? 70 CE, 70 AD. So that is the reason that that is the pivot. You have to have a central sanctuary really to do biblical Judaism. Now, as New Testament believers, Sydney, we're going to read the Old Testament through New Testament lenses, and we're going to realize that if this pulpit's the life of Christ, the Old Testament is all before Christ, and it's designed to be a glide path to send us to Christ. You know, the law is our taskmaster, our, our schoolmaster, and through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We need a Savior, so these sacrifices are pointing to the one sacrifice Christ would make for us. But since 70 AD, there hasn't been a temple. There hasn't been a central sanctuary, and you really can't do biblical Judaism without one, right? So that leads directly to the second phase, and I'm using the labels I'm using, I use at school because this is the textbook's labels. But let's call this modern Judaism or rabbinic Judaism. Rather than a central sanctuary where priests offer up animal sacrifices that are picturing what the Messiah, Jesus, is going to do, you've got synagogues, which are like Jewish churches, places of worship. And the focus isn't on priests and animal sacrifices, but rabbis and support groups. And rather than focusing on the Torah, 
as the most important part of what we'd call the Old Testament informed by the rest of the Old Testament, they focus on obeying the Torah by interpreting and applying it through the Talmud. You ever heard of the Talmud? I know Doug knows about the Talmud. The Talmud is the written form of what's called the Jewish oral law, and we'll say more about that in a minute. But that is a seismic shift, and it's not exactly the same thing. They're related, but they're different entities. So we're going to be thinking primarily about what modern Judaism looks like, because that's the world you and I live in. Now, what's that? That's a diagram of what? That's a synthetic overview of what? Yeah, the Bible. But that's really the Christian Bible. What we call the Old Testament implies there must be a New Testament, and so there is. And from our point of view, you know, the Old Testament is hammering away at the fact that all humans are sinners and they all die. Now, I know uh, Enoch and Elijah are two exceptions, but 99.999% die, right? And all of them, think of all the heroes of the Old Testament. They're all kind of slimy. I mean, God can use all kinds of flawed raw material to accomplish his purposes because they, they'll do all kinds of horrible things to each other, right? So everybody sins, everybody dies, but God's going to send a Savior to take care of the sin problem, make us savable, right? What happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament? The life, death, resurrection of Christ, right? What's the New Testament doing for us? It's looking back at the Old Testament through the lens of the cross and saying, Jesus of Nazareth is, was, is, will be, always has been the Savior. He's alive after he died, resurrection, and he's coming back. One cynical preacher told me, yeah, Jesus is coming back, so look busy. Now, modern Judaism, biblical Judaism, doesn't recognize a New Testament, do they? If they did, they'd be Christians. They wouldn't be Jews anymore, right? So we call that the Old Testament. The Jews don't call that the Old Testament. They don't have an Old Testament. They have a Tanakh. That's what they call what we, the same exact content that we call the Old Testament, David, is they call it the Tanakh. Now you can spell it differently based on your, uh, what linguists, uh, you believe, theory you believe about that last final cough there. But it's actually an acronym, the Torah, the Nebubim, and the Ketubim, you put that together as an acronym and you get Tanakh. So I'm just telling you, if you're going to interact with a Jew, quote the Old Testament, but don't call it the Old Testament. Call it the Tanakh. Suddenly they'll say, hey, this person has a little bit of uh, understanding and appreciation of where I'm coming from. And you got to start. If you're going to catch fish, you got to go where the fish are, okay? And you're going to have to get wet or at least get a, have a hook get wet, right? So let's talk about that first phase briefly. This is the one we study all the time in the Old Testament. And if you'll turn to your table of contents in your Bible... There's nothing wrong with turning to the table of contents, and I strongly recommend you do it regularly so you can find stuff. And I can't even find my table of contents, so what does that mean? Yeah, if you look at the, the table of contents of the, your, your Old Testament there, Genesis is the first, first book of the Old Testament, and I'm a Christian, so I'm calling it Old Testament. And then you go through Esther, that's 17 books, and that gives you the historical background of the whole Old Testament. Everything else fits into that. Job through Malachi fits on that timeline somewhere. And when you look at those 17 books, they give you a long, integrated story from creation, fall, flood, Babel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the uh, descent into Egypt at the end of Genesis 400 years later, a million-plus people leave Egyptian slavery under Moses. The next generation under Joshua conquers the land, and then you go into this long phase, kind of like the uh, Articles of Confederation phase in, in uh, American history, 
where you didn't have a strong central government and everybody's kind of doing their own thing, followed by the monarchy. Now, I know for you medical professionals, UTI means something completely different than I intended, but you got to let uh, people who come up with symbols tell you what the symbols mean. I mean, really, that's true. Uh, is, is, a, is lion in the Bible a good symbol or a bad symbol? Trick question. You've heard this before. What do you think, Murray? Is lion a good symbol or a bad symbol in the Bible? It both, it both, or it depends on context. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Is that good? But the devil uh, prowls around like a roaring lion. So the sim- symbols can be used in different contexts. That doesn't stand for urinary tract infection. That's the, that's the United Tribes of Israel. You only have three kings during that period. That's kind of the glory years, especially under David and Solomon. Then they have a civil war that break up. You have two nations, Judah to the south, Israel to the north. Ultimately, the southern kingdom goes into captivity and the Babylonians, and they return and rebuild the temple. And that's where the Old Testament stops, really. It's, it's an incomplete story. But the whole story revolves around God initiating covenants with this group of people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants, through which is going to come the Savior for the whole world. And the foundational uh, covenant God enters into is unconditional. It gives this group of people a land track. They still uh, should be recognized as, as connected to a nation and a blessing, and ultimately the seed is going to be Christ, who's going to be the Savior. And then when Moses takes them out of Egyptian bondage, Rather than 75 people at the end of Genesis, you've got a million and a half at the beginning of Exodus. They need a constitution, and they get the Mosaic law to that people group, not as a basis of salvation, but as a basis of conviction, so they'll realize their need for a Savior, and as a way of holding them unique from the other nations in the ancient Near East. Go to Romans 3.20. The problem is they squeeze the grace out of the tube. The problem is God gives them a set of laws which will give them peace and harmony. They won't be killing each other and stealing from each other, hopefully. But more than that, nobody can keep it perfectly, so it's supposed to drive them to the one the sacrifices at the central sanctuary talking about, the Savior. But look what happened, Romans 3.20. By the works of the law given to Old Testament Israel, nobody can be justified in God's sight because we can't keep the law. At our worst, we break our own standards, much less God. But what ultimately does the law do for us? Through the law comes the knowledge of what? Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the first step is sin. So we've got a culture that nobody sins, and everybody gets a trophy for showing up. Whether you know the plays, go hard, or win a game, doesn't matter anymore. That's not a good good way to think about anything. But look what he, he says after verse 20. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested consistent with the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, talking about the righteousness of God, that's perfect righteousness, through faith. I mean, Dustin gets this through faith in Christ. He doesn't earn it through keeping the law. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, Jew and Gentile. And it's good because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But those who believe are justified, given a righteous standing before God as a gift by God's grace. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. Through the redemption, through the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a satisfaction of his righteousness, so that, verse 26, God could be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus, that had to uh, compromise his righteous standings. Okay, we're calling that the Christian Bible. I'd call that the Old Testament. And I said those promises to Abraham and Moses are foundational of the whole story. 
This is what Judaism, both phases, understand the Bible to be. Now they're not, they're not going to, uh, they didn't necessarily deny that, but they kind of, kind of assumed later that the, uh, passages about a suffering savior was probably talking about their national history as opposed to a personal savior. But that's, that's their Bible, then and now. They've got those covenants, they've got the law, everybody dies and they need salvation and need to kind of be good enough they can earn it. That's what the Bible really is. See, when you, when you take the cross out of in the resurrection, out of the equation, you don't have anything. It's all that great, especially when somebody squeezes the grace out of it. That's what Judaism both phases has, and that's all they've got. That's what God gave, right? And also we're told that, uh, as Romans says, Christ is the end of the law. He fulfilled it for us. Now, what was the one thing I said was really important in Judaism? It's a, a temple, tabernacle, one central sanctuary, right? Well, there's a picture you've seen before. I love that picture, and I took it because most of the times people are on the Mount of Olives looking back the other way when they shoot the, uh, oh, don't say shoot, uh, when they take a picture of the Dome on the Rock. But here I'm, I'm south and a little bit uh, west of that looking back, so you can really see the Mount of Olives very prominently. But that's probably the most important part of this picture. That's the Muslim Dome of the Rock. Uh, Muhammad died in 632 A.D. by 690, they'd already built, conquered the area, and built this. It's not a mosque. It's a mosque due south of this. But this is not a mosque. It's a a commemorative building celebrating the victory of Islam over Judaism and... Yeah, that's right. That's what it stands for. And they built it on top of the Jewish Temple Mount to make it impossible for the Jews to build another central sanctuary. Now, there happens to be a fault line under that, and there's actually going to be several temples before the Lord's done with this thing. So it's not a, a problem for him. But yeah, that's that central sanctuary. Uh, now, Dustin, I hate to tell you this. Are you going to let your little boy go to Israel? Yeah, you know what? I'm sorry. I got the wrong mom there, didn't I? Okay. we got to work on your mom coming too, okay? Now, since Angel brought her mom. You're going to let your son, oh yeah, it's easy to go for the son-in-law, it's not a problem, right? Okay. Yeah, I hate it when I do that. Um, yeah, but anyway, Dustin, um, the last time we were in Israel, Homer Cox volunteered to, to, to rent a helicopter, hang off the bottom, and take aerial pictures for us like this, but this time, you're going to have to do that, okay? So, get ready. But yeah, you know, here's the Temple Mount, here's the Mount of Olives over here, that's the western wall, which is part of the wall that went around the temple in Jesus' day. But that's where you got to build a Jewish temple, and there hasn't been one since 70 A.D., and just short of 700 A.D. is when they, the Muslims built that to make sure that wouldn't happen. But what was so doggone important about that central sanctuary? Well, there, the idea that you only come to God through sacrifices to picture the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, and you know, according to that textbook, there are 36,000 different Christian denominations, but we don't have 36,000 different versions of Christianity. Uh, and none of us sacrifice animals anymore. You notice that? I can't think of a group that claims to be Christian that sacrifices animals. How come? Even though Leviticus is a whole book, Haley, about how to sacrifice animals in central sanctuary. How come nobody tries to do that? Because we realize those Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to what? And anticipating what? This one-time sacrifice of Jesus, right? Now, yeah, you got one way in only. Only priests can enter past that point. You've got a place of sacrifice right in the very front of it, a place for them to clean up because it was very messy. 
Then you got a building, a rectangular building, and in the back of the building, back third, you've got a veil that represents what? The separation between God and man that what causes sin, right? And you've got this box that looks like a coffin that's called the uh, Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, you've got several things, but the most important thing is you've got the tablets of the law that Moses had. And on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would, the only day he would go back there, would go through this veil, would sprinkle blood that had been uh, slaughtered from a goat to represent the nation's sins. He'd sprinkle that blood on the, on the lid of the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and that lid was called the kipper, or mercy seat. And the picture was God looking down through that box top and seeing the law that the people had broken all year was propitiated, was judicially satisfied when the blood of the sacrificial animal was put between God looking down and the broken law. That's the Day of Atonement. That's the most theologically important aspect of the uh, the Old Testament form of Judaism because it was designed to prepare them and the world for a Savior. So that's a quick survey of biblical Judaism. That's the one you read about in your Bible. But let's think about rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism has the Torah and the Tanakh. What's the Tanakh? That's what they call the, the Old Testament, right? But they read it through the lens of the Talmud, which is this uh, oral law. Jewish folks believe that when Moses came down and wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books, in addition to that written scripture, he uh, orally told them a, a lot of stuff that God had told him, but he just told them about it. And each generation would remember the oral law. And it was about, what exactly does it mean not to kill? What exactly does it mean not to covet? It was kind of an explanation, description of kind of what it means and how to apply it. And that was not written down until later. In fact, uh, we'll talk about that in a second. But let me uh, say this about that. The original form of Judaism focused one, on one central sanctuary. When it was portable, it's called the tabernacle. When it's a building, it's called the temple. Because there has not been a temple since 70 AD, we move into the second phase, and rather than one central sanctuary, you have synagogues all over the world, right? So the synagogue is the answer to the question, how do you do Judaism without the temple? Now, I kind of grade those texts out or the background out because that is one of the things we'll see in Israel in a couple of months. This is the ruin of the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, why is Capernaum so important in the life of Jesus? Because after he goes to Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry and preaches from Isaiah 61 and says, I'm the fulfillment of that, and they try to kill him, where does he move his ministry base? To Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, which is why he's bumping into fishermen. Uh, this is actually a 4th century synagogue, 300 but that darker stone was the foundation of the synagogue Jesus would have been in and out of as he ministered uh, for almost two years in Galilee, greater Galilean ministry. And those are my two granddaughters. And I can't keep them straight, but I'll never forget your angel's mother again. It's not what I say, it's what I mean. There's another shot of that uh, same uh, ancient synagogue. Okay, let's talk about the Talmud. Talmud, according to Jewish, the Jewish faith, when Moses received the, the, the content of the first five books and he goes down and writes it all down under inspiration, he also shared detailed commentary on all that happened up there and all that God said about how to interpret 
and apply that information, right? And that was passed along orally for thousands of years. It was not written down until 200 AD. There's actually, the Talmud has two parts. The Talmud is the written form of the Jewish oral law, and the modern form of Judaism uses that as the lens through which they interpret and apply whatever parts of Scripture they accept, and they accept different ones, right? But uh, when you look at the page, this is an interesting document. This is a page in Hebrew of the Talmud. It has two parts. What's called the Mishnah is in the middle. And this is what Moses, or what the Jewish people think Moses told them God said about what all this stuff means and how to apply it. So that's that. And that's bracketed from a second part called the Jamara. The Jamara is a series of debates between two rabbis, mainly Hillel and Shemi, but there are some other rabbis that also participate, where Hillel on one side tells you what that really means about what it's saying about the Torah. So you got the Torah, you got the uh, the uh, Mishnah, and now you've got the Jamara, uh, where you've got this guy saying it means this, this guy says it means this. Uh, when it says you can't work on the Sabbath, he says that means you can't go more than 1,500 meters a day uh, on the Sabbath. This guy says, no, you can go 2,000 meters. I mean, they have these kind of debates in the written form of the oral law because you've got rabbis debating about what the interpretation really means. So it's, it's, it's confusing, and it lends itself to lots of different points of view for obvious reasons. It's tough enough uh, when you've got a Bible where we all agree what, on what John 3.16 says on the text, but based on where people are coming from, they can have different versions of what it really means. Okay. Anybody, anybody like trees here? Okay, let's talk about branches then. Okay. Uh, there are three major branches of modern Judaism. It's more complicated than that, but here's what you want to know. The three major branches, and these are technical terms, Dustin. So, what's a technical term? Tell you what, uh, the the uh, part of the airplane that has the storage of the tapes of the pilot talking to the control towers and getting other information is called a black box. But what color is a black box? You all know that, right? Now, if that's in the Bible, Haley, that's going to, going to be one of those evil, bad Bible contradictions, because some archaeologists are going to be like, the Bible talks about black boxes on airplanes, okay? I mean, it doesn't, but if it did, then you dig this thing up, and you go, oh my gosh, the Bible made a mistake. This is orange. There's no way this is black. But in fact, is that a mistake? We call them black boxes, but they're actually painted orange. Why are they painted orange? No. OSU. <laughs> Come on. Get with the program. Of course. So, you know, if something like that's in the Bible, that's going to be a mistake, right? Black boxes are orange. I'll say, you can't trust the Bible and salvation. It can't even get that right. Actually, it gets it exactly right. So I say all that to say this. Conservative Judaism, one of the three branches, really isn't very conservative and never was. <laughs> it's what we'd call progressive. I call it regressive, okay? But from going from right to left on the theological spectrum, the most conservative of the three major branches of modern Judaism, which isn't your Bible's Judaism, it's called Orthodox Judaism. They focus on the law. They focus on the letter of the law. If the two rabbis, you know, in the Jamara have kind of a lenient interpretation, and the other guy on the other side of the page has a strict one, guess which one they're going with every time, okay? They're also ascetic. Ascetic, me, is the conviction that creature comforts weaken you spiritually and or mentally. So if it feels good, don't do it. Now, I grew up in a culture in the 70s, 
I graduated in 71, a long time ago, right after the Earth's crust hardened for you younger people. Um, yeah, uh, in which uh, the cool people said, if it feels good, do it. That's not a good way to live because a lot of stuff that feels good can kill you and make you go blind, you know? Not necessarily in that order. But ascetics say just the opposite. If something feels good, it can't be good for you. And here's my rule of thumb. Moderation in all things, including moderation, okay? For instance, uh, my daughter-in-law, uh, isn't it great to have a daughter-in-law talking about daughter-in-law? I got this one right. My daughter-in-law told her actually wanted me to go up there Friday afternoons through Saturdays so they could celebrate my birthday. Is that any good? And uh, she asked me what kind of cake I wanted, and I said I wanted uh, cookie cake, which is you can buy it like it. At, uh, at Sam's is the best one. It's a double doozy. It's too, I mean, this, this thing will blow your fitness regime just out of the water. I mean, I can't eat again for two weeks. So I'm going to have to like run a marathon every day to burn it all off. But I, I, we had an orgy of a double doozy cookie cake eating and you get those three little boys and they don't usually eat sweets, but Papa's there and it's his birthday, you know, and he may not be along that, around that much longer. So <laughs> they got to celebrate while they can. So yeah, I ate a bunch of that good stuff, but, uh, yeah, Orthodox Judaism, uh, has squeezed all the grace out of the deal, and they focus on the law very strict, and asceticism says, if it feels good, don't do it because it's gonna weaken you. And that's not necessarily true at all. You know, I think there's a great joy in Christianity, but you're not gonna get joy from the letter of the law or focusing on how righteous or you become self-righteous you are. You've got to abide in Christ. He's got to be the driver of your Christian life. He's the one you trust to save you. He's the one you've got to serve so you'll never notice how great you are or all these sacrifices you're making or the fact nobody notices you or pat you on the head or whatever you want. So anyway, Orthodox Judaism is the most conservative, but it's, it's conservative with no grace. It's legalism. It's works. If it feels good, don't do it. It's going to make you weak spiritually or mentally. Very conservative in the theology. Of course, they have no problems believing Moses wrote all... First five books of the Bible. I don't have any problem with that. That's who wrote it, clearly. No big deal. Conservative Judaism's in the middle, but it's really far left of center. It's very progressive, regressive. They focus on tradition. They focus on celebrating the holidays, even though they don't necessarily believe there really was an exodus, historically. And then Reform Judaism is so far to the left, it's almost off the chart, although it's hard to get off that chart nowadays. Very liberal in their theology. They don't really take the scripture, Old Testament, the Tanakh is all that seriously. They're all about social reform. Now that's who they are. Here's the, the bad news from my point of view. When you look at American Judaism, the radical left group is the larger chunk of the pie. 30% have no denomination, no branch. They're not even interested in, in their religion. They're just uh, ethnically Jewish. The conservatives, are they real conservative? It's like black box. They're not black. The oranges. No, they're not real conservative. They're about twice or half the size of the Reformed and Jude- uh, the Orthodox Jews, which ex- actually take the scripture seriously. They're like 10%. So we've got six and a half million. You've got what? 650,000, uh, only in the United States. Now, uh, we're approaching the happy ending. All the messages have happy endings because we're all happy when they're over, including me, actually. But some weeks, but uh, some weeks I don't want it to stop. But uh, what we've been trying to do is we've looked at uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, and now we're looking at modern Judaism, is to kind of put down our baseline. It's not TBS baseline, but we're looking at the absolute irreducible minimum theological truth claims of the Christian church, at least as far as it's obvious in church history, God has blessed the ones that have 
born-again folks who embrace these essentials. So you got Whitfield and Wesley. You got the Calvinists, you got the Arminian, helping to catalyze revival in pre-revolution United States. And they both respected one another, even though they had a different conception of certain parts of how you open up when you open up the hood and look at how things work. They disagree on some of the details. But it doesn't matter what color, country, generation, denomination of Christian, the Holy Spirit, through the Scripture, has taught us clearly about seven key doctrinal positions. And let's review what they are. Then we'll kind of compare modern Judaism with these. What does Scripture say clearly about who God is? He's real. He's personal. He's triune. One God, three persons. You know, you might say he's true. That is, he's really real. He's triune. He's transcendent outside of time and space. He's omniscient. What does that mean? Knows absolutely everything. He's omnipotent. What does that mean? No finite limit on his power. He's omnipresent. What does that mean? Everywhere present in time and space all at the same time. Okay? He's just. He's righteous. He's sovereign. He's love. He's immutable. He's veracity. Everything he affirms in science and scripture is true. You can trust it. And he's eternal. So that's who God is. Okay? That's not what Judaism says. That's what scripture says. Of what New Testament Christianity says. Right? That's who God is generally. Who is Jesus Christ specifically according to New Testament uh, teaching and the life of Christ? He's the unique person of the universe. He's the God-man Savior. He's the second person of the Trinity who took on humanity without ceasing to be deity. I don't know how you do that. I have no idea. But one person with how many natures? Fully God, fully man. He's going to be the mediator between God and man, right? He's the God-man, God-man. Who are we according to Scripture? We are all GIs, not necessarily in the military, but we're all guilty we can't keep the law. We can't keep our own standards, much less God's. And we have a complete eye, inability to do anything meritorious to save ourselves, right? Guilty before God, complete inability uh, by the works of the law. No flesh to be justified in God's sight. We can't take the law, even the Mosaic law, and save ourselves with it. And that was actually given by God, right? What did Christ do? Perfect righteous life, substitutionary atoning sacrifice on the cross, and LBSR, what's that stand for? Literal, bodily, supernatural, can't do it in the test in the laboratory, resurrection from the dead. So because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. But he's not dead anymore. That's really important, right? The resurrection validates the saving virtue of the death of Christ. Uh, have you trusted him alone for that? You can't do that unless God's giving you lots of help. Turn the lights on, all kinds of stuff. Uh, you might hear that today and trust Christ. That's not because of something I said. That's because of all kinds of inputs God's been doing in and around you. You just don't appreciate it sometimes. So what do we have to do to receive the merits of Christ's death? To go to heaven when we die for sure. What are we going to do? Well, uh, I asked a Jehovah's Witness once, and he said, you've got to obey the gospel. And I said, what does that mean? You've got to obey all the laws and commandments of the Bible. Can you do that? Can he do that? Can't do that. What do you got to do? you got to trust Jesus Christ for salvation. Salvation is by God's grace. What does grace mean? Unmerited favor. Received by faith. It's the empty hand that receives the merits of Christ, John Calvin said. Right? It's active, receptive trust. But to the one who does not work, Romans 4, 5 says, but to the one who does not work for it, thinks they can earn it themselves, they realize they're guilty with an inability, but the one who does not work, but who believes in him, Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, you qualify? Yeah, I, I qualify. That person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. Uh, let's look at Philippians 3. Uh, Dale read this as our call to worship. In Romans 3, the first several verses are Paul's 
the Apostle Paul's uh, personal testimony, he had been a very religious, a scrupulously religious uh, Pharisee in the first phase of Judaism, hoping to earn salvation by obeying the law. But he says about his conversion, and clearly God kind of breaks through a lot of paradigms to get Paul's eyes open. But he says, look at verse 8, I count all the stuff I've been stacking up trying to impress God and earn my salvation by being a good Jew to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. And he meant that literally. He lost his job, lost his pension, lost his whole direction of his life. It totally radically changed uh, after he trusted Christ and count them but rubbish. And that's almost a harsh term in the Greek, scubia. You can look that up later, uh, that I might gain Christ. And now watch this. Look at this, Dustin. Because he trusted Christ alone for salvation, now Paul was found in him. That's where uh, his legal standing was, his position in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the Old Testament law, because I can't keep it perfectly, and he couldn't either, that's what we're talking about. But that righteousness, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, is given to the person that believes in Christ alone. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So when Paul is asked in Romans 16, verse 30, what must I do to be saved? He doesn't say, obey all the laws and the commandments of the Bible. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. John says, he was in the world and the world had been made by him, but the world didn't know him. Came into his own, the Jewish people, and most of them didn't receive him. But to each individual does receive him. To them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe. Believe is not mental assent, it's active receptive trust. The leper says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What does Jesus say? I'm willing. Be cleansed. What does the terrorist on the cross say? He wasn't a thief. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I'm a sinner. I can do nothing to earn salvation, but you can save me and I want you to. I don't think he was even a theologian. You don't have to be a theologian to be saved. You have to be like a little child who by God's grace trusts in Christ alone as Savior and, and receives him personally. So it's active receptive trust. What Christ will do, he's going to end history on God's terms uh, by a literal bodily supernatural second advent. What the Bible is, it's verbally inspired word of God, Old Testament, New Testament. What does Judaism say? And we got modern Judaism and realize, I'm going to be saying, kind of, what do the most conservative Jews say? That would be Orthodox Jews. Uh, the conservative Jews and the moderates will take some of that seriously, some of it won't, and the Reformed Jews won't take very much of the Bible very seriously, except for the parts that say love your enemies and stuff like that. They like that. Until they actually have to love somebody with a Trump hat on, and then they can't do that. So that's just a different thing. And I don't wear Trump hats. I wear OSU hats. It's the same. Uh, my OSU hats are the same color of, as black boxes are, just so you know. Okay. Uh, okay, traditionally... Both phases, but uh, conservative Jews, uh, I should say Orthodox Jews, who are conservative, they said there's only one God, one person. His name's Yahweh, all caps for Lord, the personal God who made himself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, entered into a covenant with Moses for those people, right? So that's who they'd say, and, and they're right, and partially right, right? Who is Jesus Christ? Well, you know what? Most modern Jews don't see Jesus as a bad guy. They see Christianity as a bad thing. The apostles didn't really understand him. He never claimed to be God. He never claimed to be Messiah. He was just a good social reformer. That's what they're going to say. The apostles missed it, missed it, or they tried to build a structure after he's dead so they could be rich and powerful, even though none of them were rich and they all got killed for it. Right? 
So most, most Jews today are happy to say Jesus was probably a very sincere social reformer, you know, uh, kind of a community organizer, I think is the term now. Yeah. Who are we? Well, you know, we're all God's children, and we're able to save ourselves however God draws the line wherever he draws it by being good people. And they will they say Gentiles don't have to embrace Judaism to go to heaven necessarily. There's like seven things they want us to do, starting with don't kill people. Uh, don't eat blood, stuff like that. Don't mess you up. What Christ do? What was the premise? How many gods are there? One God, one person. Jesus, at best, is just a really good human being. Well, he offended powerful people and was killed. That's what happened, which is what happens to community organizers, you know, when they kind of rattle their chains against conservative, sticky wickets, you know, like uh, uh, the rulers of uh, Judaism were in the first century. Uh, he was just... Uh, uh, a social reformer that got in the way of powerful forces and they killed him. That's all that happened, right? What do we got to do? Well, I mean, to have a blessed eternity, we got to uh, live good, righteous lives. I mean, we're able to. We don't need a Savior. Jesus is not a Savior. We just need to be good Jewish people if they're Jewish, and they'll con- most of them will say Gentiles can make it too. Uh, now realize, when, once you get from, um, once you get from Orthodox Jews who are conservative in their theology, the conservative Jews that are progressive to uh, reform Jews, a lot of these people don't even believe in life after death anymore, okay? <laughs> so I'm talking about the ones who kind of think in these categories. What's Christ going to do? He's going to do nothing special in the future any more than any other sincere, righteous person who kind of earned his way into heaven. He's just one among equals. And what's the Bible, according to their understanding? What is it? The New Testament and the Old Testament? They don't have an Old Testament. How come? They have one testament. It's the Tanakh, right? So they're going to say it's the Tanakh illustrated and explained by the written form of the old law. So they're, you know, they're putting a fence around the law, a fence around the Tanakh out of respect, but they get so far away from it, they have no chance. You know, They can't see it. They can't see really the heart of it. So as we conclude, what are we saying today? We're saying modern Judaism isn't your Bible's Judaism. There are two historical phases, biblical Judaism, modern or rabbinic Judaism, but uh, as I close, let me talk about how we'd respond biblically to both. And you might say, well, why are, you re- why are you referring to response to a phase that doesn't exist anymore? Because the premise of original Judaism, as it, what, seen in the Pharisees, was to squeeze all the grace out and see all the rules as not the fruit of salvation. We obey the rules because we love our ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an effect. They saw it as the cause for salvation. So their spiritual issue is, Salvation is by the law. We don't need a Savior because we can keep it, and we're supposed to, and those who really keep it well uh, can actually earn it and deserve it. Well, that's the issue to which Paul is speaking at the end of Romans 9 and first part of 10. Watch this. This is hard to believe, but God's grace extends to Gentiles who never even tried to obey the Mosaic law, and they attain the righteousness. They receive the righteousness they need to go to heaven, not uh, righteousness by works, but that which is by faith. Uh, but Israel and the Jewish folks, by and large, with some exceptions, of course, pursuing a law that was going to give them righteousness if they kept it well enough, did not arrive at the whole point of that law because they didn't pursue salvation by faith, but as though it was by works and merit. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They tried to establish their own righteousness, and that's the problem. And listen, most unchurched Americans think that's the way we think. They think Ron Norton 
goes to church every Sunday, and he is going to go to heaven, he thinks, because he goes to church and is a nice person. And to the extent anybody gets that impression, if they follow me around, they're not going to think, I just go to church and I'm a nice person, because I'm not that nice, right? Uh, we have to have standards at Cameron now. You make, you know, you make 27 on a midterm, that's not an A, that's not a B, that's not even a C. I mean, that's not even an F. That's t- terrible, you know? It's horrible. It's, it's worse. It's, uh, now we're supposed to say, uh, we're going to grade everything not yet. You didn't make an F. You just made a not yet. You don't you don't know anything yet. So, <laughs> yeah, you got to make them feel good about it. Um, but, yeah, uh, the average American thinks Dustin and Angel, in addition to being high-quality people and students, uh, they just think they're better than the average person that doesn't go to church. And, they, and that's what Christianity is. A bunch of rules, and if you obey the rules good enough, you make it to heaven. That's not what Christianity believes. That's not what it teaches. To the extent people get that, uh, if we're too self-righteous out in the real world, they're going to think that's the way you're thinking probably, okay? you got to be careful about that. But that would be the prescription. And then also I'd like to go that Philippians passage where Paul says, hey, you know, I've counted the loss of everything because I now know through faith I get righteousness, not by uh, my own works. How do we react to the uh, the key spiritual problem by the modern form of Judaism? Which again, hey Wendy, most modern Jews don't say bad things about Jesus. They think he's a very nice guy, right? Very nice Jewish guy, misunderstood by the apostles and or subsequent generations. Surely by 325 Council of Nicaea, they totally messed it up. The Gentiles did. But the spiritual issue is, Jesus may or may not have been a good guy. You can find some modern Jews who don't think Jesus was a good guy. But the vast majority of them will say, well shit, he's fine. But he's not a savior, we don't need a savior. There's nothing in the Tanakh about us needing a Savior. Well, no, the whole sacrificial system, Day of Atonement for sure, but how about Isaiah 53? Okay, we don't have time for the whole chapter, but we just talked about that a lot. Isaiah 53, written about 700 B.C., talks about what the Savior's going to do for us. He's going to be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the chastening that we deserved needed to make us good to go to heaven fell on him. He's our substitutionary atonement sacrifice. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord, Yahweh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And you've got all these statements in the Old Testament about taking refuge in the Lord. That means to trust in the Lord for salvation based on his promised provision and Savior. Uh, one, it kind of sounds like John 3, 16 in one way, but... Genesis 15.6, don't turn there because we're almost out of time, but uh, turn there later. It's a great chapter. You ought to read it sometime. But um, Genesis 15.6 has Abraham, who's living 2000 B.C., believed God's promises about the Savior he's going to send, and his faith was reckoned as righteousness. Galatians and Romans cites that statement as proving that Old Testament, people living before the cross were saved by faith, and a promised Savior in the same way Steve Skinner was saved as a young man who looked back at, at, at the provided Savior and trusted in the provided Savior. So you've got that. And then it's interesting because in uh, John eight fifty eight, where Jesus claims to be God and they try to stone him, when stoning stopped, Jesus says, uh, uh, he says uh, a couple of things and they're saying, uh, you know, you're, you're not a, you didn't see Abraham, you know, and, and Jesus says, you know, uh, uh, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. What did that mean? 
Abraham lived in 2000 BC. Jesus is saying that in 33 AD, and he's saying, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, to see my coming. What's he talking about? Through the eyes of faith. And they said, hey, you, you're not, you're wrong. You're not older than Abraham. You're not wiser than Abraham, and they try to stone him. So that is clearly taught in the Old Testament uh, throughout, Genesis through Malachi. But the problem is they've squeezed the grace out of it. There are forms of Christianity that squeeze the grace out of it. Either they front load the gospel with a bunch of stuff that ought to be an effect of salvation, ought to be fruit, they put it as the root. And when you do that, some people will not trust Christ alone because they think walking the outside of the cards what's dealing doing the deal, right? Like you sign a you sign something to buy a house, you sign something in front of the church to get saved, you know? I'm not against signing stuff. Especially if you want to sign a check over to me at some point, you know, it'd be fine. Uh, 15 million is a good number to start with, you know. Uh, whatever you got. But, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of forms of Christianity that have squeezed a lot of the grace out of this thing. And when you do that, it has, you know, human, humanly speaking, it seems to have a lot of wisdom. We feel like we've got to obey rules. I don't think Christianity is about obeying rules. I think it's loving your Lord as your ruler. So, of course, you obey the rules, okay? I've often said I've been married for 45 years in a row. To the same person, that's the hard part, you know. But, you know, if my wife wants me to call her when I come home from work, you know, after a long, grueling day of reading the Bible, you know, I need to call her so she can, she needs a warning. What she's doing when I'm not there, I don't know, but she wants me to call her, okay. And, uh, you know, if I do that only because she gave me a card and I wouldn't really say, hello, this is Brad, I am coming home now, I'm completing the assignment on the card, thank you very much, goodbye. Am I going to get any points for that? God's not wanting robots. He's wanting us to, as a spiritual beggar, embrace the salvation he'll give us for free through faith in Jesus Christ. And then when we get that get out of hell free card, we also have a capacity to totally serve him and grow spiritually as the Lord of our lives. And as we do that, as we idealize or put Christ in the center of our pie chart, we're not going to fornicate. We're not going to rob banks. We're not going to be cussing. We're not going to be all this stuff. And if we do, we'll certainly... Mainly the cussing, probably more than the other, but uh, we're, we're going to process it spiritually, right? Kind of thing. So, unfortunately, human beings are all about obeying rules and jumping the hoops, and and even churches do this because we want you to show up for stuff and do stuff so we can prove to ourselves we're doing something. But uh, God's more interested in reality than just ritual. And unfortunately, modern Judaism has settled for a, a counterfeit works-based version of the real thing, even though they can cite the Old Testament, the Tanakh, and Hebrew. Okay. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I do pray that uh, you would be at work in very sovereign, dynamic ways in the lives of uh, the 15 million people who embrace Judaism right now. We know you've got big things in store for them in the end times. And just in connection with the second advent, all Israel will be saved. But I pray for them. And, and a lot of us maybe don't interact with... Uh, dedicated Jewish people in small-town Oklahoma very often, although it can happen, but we also deal quite often with people who have that mindset. There's no grace. God grades on a curve. If good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, uh, but we never know if we're good enough until we die, and then we find out and keep our fingers crossed. When you're offering us a whole radically different thing, based on your grace despite our inability and our guilt, you offer salvation as a free gift, bought and paid for by our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you open our hearts to see and believe, you regenerate us. 
And it's not based on anything we've done uh, for Christ. It's all about what Christ has done for us. So help us to be very much aware 